It's Lou Rosenfeld, and welcome to another installation of the Rosenfeld Review podcast series. I'm here today with Nate Bolt and L.A. Howdy, howdy. Nate is a, one of these weird people in that he um, grew up in San Francisco, and, and uh, that's how I always associated him as like a, this dyed-in-wool Bay Area guy and <laughs> just moved to L.A. I know. It's crazy. It's, uh, it's a thing now. Yeah. Is LA becoming a, like a really big center of the, the user experience uh, scene? I don't know about that, but there's definitely some interesting tech stuff happening. And I think there's a lot of, oddly, confusingly, there's a lot of quality of life stuff down here that I was not finding as much in San Francisco. You mean like not being bankrupt? <laughs> right. Quality of life, not being broke. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. Um, uh, I got to see Nate uh, a few months ago in Pasadena and, and uh, was uh, at an event where I spoke uh, and got to not only see him, but just so many UX people in LA, many more than I realized, and, and a bunch have moved out there since then, which was just about six months ago. So uh, hats off LA. I'm looking forward to visiting <laughs> you more often. Nate is um, best known, I think, for uh, being the founder of Ethneo. Uh, tell us a little bit. What's the what's the um, the, the one liner about Ethno? I'm sure you can do be- do it better than I will. Yeah, I'll try. It's it's research for UX. You know, it's recruiting for UX research and and you know helping man people manage the whole process of finding the right participants, scheduling them, paying them incentives. And I, I think uh, you know most of the people listening in have certainly heard of Ethno. It's not a huge company, but it's it's got a, a big footprint in the field. And Nate's been doing that for many years. Uh, I wish he was at least as well known for the Rosenfeld Media book he wrote with Tony Beauty. <laughs> uh, it's called Remote Research. Uh, what year did that come out, Nate? That was 2011. And uh, I think it, it, it's a fantastic book, uh, and I think it was way ahead of its time. Maybe <laughs> we should be thinking about a second edition because I think remote research is kind of uh, not a new thing now. It's kind of a it's a it's a, a thing thing that you you can right, right. do. Uh, and, and you were really providing a lot of guidelines for people who are just starting to scratch the surface and, as well as digging in a little deeper. Yeah, I guess it's just what people kind of do now. It's just part of the normal toolkit. Right. Remote research is, is research. And um, Nate is also speaking at uh, the next Rosenfeld Media Virtual Conference, which is taking place October 11th. And uh, uh, it's called User Research for Everyone. And uh, Nate and uh, seven other folks, including Steve Krug and Erica Hall and Laura Klein, and uh, I can run through the whole list, but you can just go to userresearchforeveryone.com right now and, and get the program. Uh, it's a great group of people who are really uh, trying to help non-user researchers, uh, not from our tribe, but people who um, need to know about user research. They're, they're maybe product owners or managers or developers or or designers or, um, or marketing people, just folks who uh, at least understand that user research is a thing, realize that they're not that well-versed in it, need to get up and running, or at least need to be able to work with uh, other people uh, who do user research, or maybe they are user researchers, but they, um, they, they uh, need to brush up or they're just new to the field and, and need to as much help as they can get. So we're gonna have a single day event, virtual, and Nate is one of the speakers. Uh, and he's going to be talking about recruiting. So why don't we jump into that topic? Sure. And 
and maybe uh, along the way we'll, we'll cover a bit of remote research, but what, what's, you know, if you're talking to someone who's new to this, why do they even need to be thinking about recruiting as a, as a critical area for them to pay attention to? Well, it's kind of a spectrum. Like, you can just grab literally the first human you see, and they probably could be a viable participant in user research, you know, depending on what you're testing. And that's the sort of entryway if you're just getting started doing user research, you know, grabbing somebody in the hallway is kind of time-tested, uh, or friends and family. Yeah, there, There is nothing wrong with that. And any, I think mo probably most of the speakers at the event you're putting on will probably agree, you know, something is better than nothing. And just getting real humans, getting in the process of observing real humans using your interface is, is so important, especially because we're all, data is becoming increasingly you know, accessible and, and popular and complex. So there's plenty of opportunities to, to look at the data, but to look at real humans, however you recruit them, is great. And then it's just a spectrum on from there in terms of increasing the validity of your research by increasing the quality of your participants. And so it goes from friends and family to Craigslist to maybe some targeted list to recruiting agencies to, you know, targeting intercepts within your software to you know, I don't know, like incredibly complex screeners and, and, you know, just finding like the exact right person. And I think that's, you know, it's just a, um, always a trade off in terms of how far you want to go with the recruiting strategy and, and the, how, how sort of accurate you want it to be. So what are the, what are the criteria that you need to think about? I mean, validity is one, and I'd like to come back to that. I mentioned your budget's another. Yeah. What else? Well, I think the first thing is how broad your target audience is. If you're building a consumer-facing interface, you know, probably can get feedback from almost anybody. But if you're building a database administrator, you know, admin tool, <laughs> you, you kind of need database administrators, you know. So uh, how broad, obviously. Uh, yeah. With scope, uh, maybe a, a, a term. Is there any other major variables that uh, you need to take into account as you're, you're thinking about who your subject pool should be? You know, um, I think that the other like main thing is just, you know, who's involved with the research. Because if it's just you and a designer and a developer and you don't have, it's just the people that are making the changes who are observing things, you maybe don't have to be quite as rigorous with the recruiting strategy. If it's, if you, if it's only a three-person startup, and you just need pe people to use your thing, that's not going to be as much pressure as if you work at a big company and you're going to have 25 stakeholders sort of pouring over who exactly were your participants and why they were chosen. So is the issue there partly that you have those 25 people and there's a lot of them, and so you need to have something that's more tightly scientific and therefore like more, in more incontrovertible. Yeah, totally. That That's it. And it's, and it's because the first thing that happens anytime somebody doesn't like the findings in qualitative research is, and I guess this is true with data as well, but they want to really scrutinize the methods. You know, they want to be like, well, we don't like what these 12 people said, but who are these 12 people anyways? What do they know? You know, so your, your buttoned up recruiting strategy can be the first line of defense against anybody criticizing the rigor of your research. And, it, it, you know, I, I just got to chime in and, and say, uh, you know, as someone who's been in the field, I think it's not just sort of the, the level of 
the seniority that those people have, those stakeholders, or how many. Sometimes it's the field they come from. So yeah. I remember uh, trying to affect change as an outside consultant at the Centers for Disease Control about 10, 12 years ago. And uh, I asked to meet with the stakeholder who is uh, a doctor uh, and a scientist. And I think about every third word out of my mouth, he challenged. Huh. Uh, you know, what, what's, what, what, do you have to back that up? Right. <laughs> and uh, foolishly, I really wasn't ready. Uh, I maybe was ready for about every 12th word, but it was insane. And I walked out of that office with uh, my tail between my legs, and I don't think I ever went back. <laughs> And that reminds me of the sort of critical factor of the product. So, you know, I guess another issue is, uh, and I don't know how much this affects recruiting, but let's say you're in the business of uh, making surgical devices. Mm -hmm. uh, you're doing laser surgery, maybe. Uh, you probably have kind of a life or death uh, issue to consider. Does yeah. that affect recruiting as well? Well, absolutely. And, and the more specialized you get, I think the more important recruiting becomes, you know, with, in terms of what you're building. So if you're building a specialized interface, you're probably going to have to do somewhat specialized recruiting. But that doesn't mean it has to be necessarily expensive or time consuming. You know, it just depends. If you're building a surgical tool, I bet you probably are somewhat tied into the, you know, uh, field of that whatever the surgeons are and probably have some connections to you know different groups of surgeons and associations and people that would probably be very interested in helping find participants and actually physicians in general is something that we used to at Bull Peters when I had the research consulting firm we ran into healthcare field stuff sometimes and there's a whole set of recruiting strategies I think unique to healthcare let's say and I think that the more specialized fields all have that you know Okay, so th there's a lot of things to consider. Now, now we've just sort of gone, we've just sort of taken the whole conversation and, and blown it up. Now, how do we kind of bring it back <laughs> down in a way that might feel a little less uh, uh, overwhelming for people, especially those who are, who are new to this? How do they, so, so now let's make sense of all this in a way that uh, can help them. Are there a few heuristics that are sort of the, the critical things people need to know? That's a good question. I think the main thing is, do you have humans as part of your design process? That's the first heuristic. It's an easy yes or no question. And I think it's no very often. So it's not a given that this sort of human observation, you know, user research, whatever you want to call it, is a part of the process. You know, you and I know that. So the first, you know, the, on the spectrum of, of recruiting accuracy or recruiting expertise or whatever just doing it it's like a pretty good pretty already ahead of the pack and the sec i think the second most important heuristic is do your participants have some sort of real attachment to the tasks that you're asking them to do there's all sorts of ways you can create tasks and there's passionate tasks and listening lab but like the fundamental thing that you're interested in getting you know feedback or watching people do that that behavior and again, I'm talking about research where there is a behavioral component. This isn't as much like opinion and attitudinal stuff. But so for behavioral like user research, whatever the thing that you want them to do is, they should care about that in some way. It should have some relationship to their lives. And that's different for every study. But that's, I think, a huge driver of accurate behavior, of accurate feedback, is when people give a crap. 
Well, um, let me just ask you a question about that, the, the, the give-a-crap factor. I mean, we, we know from doing things like, let's say, evaluations of, of products or experiences that you, you, you often hear from the people who are most happy or even more from the people who are least happy. There's the, the sort of silent majority in the middle. Um, do you feel like you, know, there, you want to be sort of across that spectrum, or do, do, do you like that sort of implicit bias, or do you, do you think we need to dig more into that middle? That's a really good question. I think naturally, with most forms of recruiting, you tend to get the polls, people that love you or, or are pissed off about your product in some way. That's a really broad generalization. But in just broad terms, I think that does happen a little bit. And I don't think that necessarily correlates with behavioral differences. So mm -hmm. if we're talking about opinions, if you get 12 people and six of them absolutely hate your product and six of them absolutely love your product, I don't think that that behavior, when you actually watch them, is going to be much different from 12 people that are exactly lukewarm and have no strong you know, feelings either way about your product, just in terms of behavior. I bet the opinions you'll get will be way, way different. But I don't know, and I, I obviously don't have any studies or, or scientific evidence to back this up, but I don't know that by attitudinal bias towards your company impacts behavior in observational user research. You know what I mean? Interesting. And of course, I took you away. Uh, I pogo stick down from uh, uh, from the second heuristic. Uh, maybe we should go back up to those. For, oh for yeah, the, yeah. So first was that. doing it. Second is finding people that give a crap. I think third is finding, you know, it, this and this is a, sort of an art form. Finding participants that you know are engaged as participants, and that's that's why a lot of people do phone screens before the study some people are simply more comfortable thinking out loud sometimes you get participants that are just quiet and they just don't um, give you a lot of info i think getting if you have 10 or 20 participants that are articulate about what they're doing and get and and more engaged as a participant you tend to feel like you're getting more feedback than 10 or 20 people that just don't say a word okay so that's maybe the third heuristic. Yeah, I think that's pretty good to start with. All right. Well, we got we got our way through um, three heuristics. Yeah. Uh, let me take it in a little bit of a different direction um, because, as we mentioned earlier, Ethneo is a way to help automate the recruiting process. It'd be interesting to know, you know, what the the, the basic gist of what Ethneo can do, but I'm also interested in what it can't do. Yeah. I'm assuming that regardless, there's some huge amount of recruiting process that ultimately humans have to do. They cannot be automated. Right. And I don't know if you're, since you've launched Ethno, if that's, that sort of breakdown of automated versus manual has changed very much or you see it changing much in the future, but you good to get a sense of what it does and, and, and what we still have to do. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think... The, the stuff that is a little bit automated and certainly can be is all the logistics in finding and scheduling participants. Because while most people, I think, still do this process manually of like emailing people or calling people and asking them if next Tuesday is good. And there's, you know, a host of tools like Calendly and, and I don't know, there's a couple other ones where you can sort of automate the scheduling process. There, it's a huge time drain coordinating 
10, 12, 15, 20, whatever sessions. And I think a lot of that can be successfully automated. The stuff that cannot be automated is the actual moderated observation. You know, so right. making sure a real human is watching a real human use a computer, it seems like that's the thing at its core that's sort of difficult to incorporate into the whole development process. And it's much easier to use tools and suites of tools that are like analytics and automated feedback mechanisms, even stuff that's self-moderated like usertesting.com, which is probably the, the sort of gold standard, the most popular tool in terms of something that has mainstream appeal to lots of different types of job titles, not just user researchers. But I think all that stuff is, you know, it's kind of, um, it, it can be automated except for the actual watching the person part. Does that make sense? Right. But I mean, so, but, you know, the actual observation is, is once the recruiting is done, is there a, like an intermediary stage where an automated approach might say, all right, here's my suggested pool. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. You human being need to select totally. someone. Okay. Totally. And that's what Ethneo does. We even have an algorithm where we're sort of evaluating how thoughtful people are with their answers to a, to a given recruiting screener. So we, you know, if somebody types a lot or types a lot of words or types words that seem to be longer in open-ended paragraph style fields, we, we use that as part of the algorithm to identify, is this person going to be a good participant? Mm -hmm. So I think that stuff, that kind of stuff can help. Now, ultimately, we're just putting that list in front of a human, but we can make it easier and faster for them to select the participants, you know? Right. Well, that's fascinating. Some of that secret sauce. Thank yeah. you for, for tipping your, your, your hat a little bit about it. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, what, what's on the horizon? Is there anything else that you can at least give us a, a, a taste of that we should Yeah. Know? What we've seen, and this is really interesting, is that teams of user researchers, so two or more design researchers, user researchers, UX researchers, or insights, whatever, they're always different job titles. But those types of teams living in a design team, living in a marketing team, or even in a consumer insights team are growing incredibly fast. Even, let's say, 10 years ago, I hardly knew of any in-house like UX research teams besides maybe Google. And now they're everywhere. And so for us, figuring out ways we can support those teams with managing their research practice, um, um, you know, sorting their studies, managing the flow of interviews across an organization. So making sure that participants aren't used twice, um, tracking a sort of panel of research participants and being able to set global rules on contact frequency and, you know, really tracking the entire process for a team of researchers. That has become much more interesting for us. And that's really different than stuff like usertesting.com that's trying to target the biggest possible audience for research. Um, so that's kind of the direction we're heading in, which is very niche. That's really exciting. I mean, I, I, I talk with people like user testing and, and some of the other folks as well fairly frequently, and I, I see these two kind of um, vectors that you're all sort of looking at at different degrees, <laughs> and one is this scaling up with the team as it scales up right. within an organization. And then the other seems to be um, taking these pieces of these broader processes uh, and, and interconnecting them. So, you know, recruiting has a really important role. Uh, data analysis has a totally. really important role at a later stage. And what I'm really excited to see is, uh, I don't think we're seeing it yet, but I think we ultimately will, is 
companies in the space really acting like platforms and uh, allowing for um, the process to kind of take place fully within the platform and, and for data to, to move literally as well as figuratively through the process, starting as data and becoming information and then knowledge and then wisdom uh, and insight. Uh, I, I think, you know, it sounds a little, you know, Henry Ford mass production issue, you know, you put it on one end of the line and, and you know, a bunch of raw materials and then, you know, a nice shiny Ford comes out the other end, but, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to work like that, but I, I do think we're, we're kind of headed in a direction that's a little more like that, where I, I totally one agree. line instead of many disparate companies trying to connect together. Totally agree. And I think a lot of people who work in the field want that. If you think about research having... I don't know, four broad stages, like the setup and planning and, you know, mm -hmm. defining everything and then the actual recruiting and then the testing and then the reporting or collaboration. If those are like the four kind of basic building blocks. Right now, there are no tools that really help people across all four of those phases. You're using a bunch of different tools in each one of those phases. And someday, a long time from now, I think there can be a tool that does all, all of those. There are plenty of tools that claim to do all of those, <laughs> but as anybody that's really a working user researcher knows, they don't all quite cover all of those well. There's, you know, once you really get into it, there's excellent tools for each one of those kind of right. phases. Um, but that'll be, I completely agree with you, and I think a lot of tools want to be that. I just don't think any of them have like nailed it yet. You know, I mean, like we're we're like any other field too. I mean, we're we're fairly young, and that means uh, we we still have, to, no matter how educated we are and uh, how many letters we have after our names, a lot of us are still doing basic plumbing. Yeah, yeah, cleaning up files and 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 dealing with formats and and piping from this to that. But hey, listen, while we're dreaming, I mean, what my my dream is that you know we get to a point where. Um, we're not only, you know, creating something that's more of a, a integrated process to, to get from raw data to insight, but, you know, along the way we start looping in different tools and different methods that generate different kinds of data and, and put them together. You know, it's, uh, it's the whole blind man of the elephant thing. You know, we, none of us really, no, no tool, no single tool or even perspective of professionals can really see the truth. You have to kind of get them to collaborate. So I'm, I'm hoping at some point these these all-purpose research platforms are not just for user researchers, but also for customer researchers, market researchers, analytics people. Uh, everyone's coming to the party with their quant or their qual data, their attitudinal or their behavioral data, uh, their data about the what versus their data about the why, and on and on and on. And uh, won't it be a nice party when? We're all there, and we're all invited. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, and I think we'll I think we'll get there for sure. There's a lot of demand for that. Well, um, this has been just so much fun, and uh, I I wish we could go on, but uh, we try to keep these to 20 minutes. So in in the last few seconds, um, I will do a couple of things. I'll remind people that Nate is one of our speakers at our October 11th virtual conference. How to find and recruit amazing participants for user research is his talk, and the, the the conference is user research for everyone. So not really for super experienced user researchers, but for everyone who needs to know something about user research and is trying to get started and, and achieve a at least a basic level of literacy. So um, it's October 11th. Go to userresearchforeveryone.com, 
And the other thing I wanted to do was to thank you, Nate. It's great to have you on the show. Great to Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Lou. It's been a while. Good talking. Likewise. Take care. Cool, man. You too.